listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture for this morning is Matthew 1, verses 1 to 5a. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 783. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. There are many, many secrets housed in the walls of this tavern, secrets that would astonish, secrets that would thrill, secrets that would disturb even the most hardened heart. Some secrets are worth keeping, but you know that already. As a rule, women in my profession don't ask questions. Our patrons come for a drink and to escape their lives, not to discuss them. They come to me for comfort, not for quizzes. So when two strangers came in asking questions, I knew they were spies from the Hebrew campsite, and I knew that the lives of my loved ones were in danger. I couldn't prevent an attack on Jericho, but I would do everything in my power to save the lives of my family. I had sacrificed my body countless times to provide food for my family. This time, I risked my life to give them breath. So when evening came, I hid our visitors on the rooftop under some flax heaps. And when arrogant soldiers banged on my door, I lied. And I sent them away chasing ghosts in the darkness. In return for my dishonesty, the grateful spies promised to spare my life and the lives of my family. And together we promised to hold these secrets We exchanged gifts to save each other's lives. I gave them, those men, a yellow rope made from reeds and fiber. And we used it to lower them from my window so they could climb down and get to safety. And they gave me a crimson cord to hang above our doorway to mark my house as the one to pass by when the violent attack came to annihilate my city. Kiss for kiss, kindness for kindness, secret for secret. Sometimes we lie down to survive, and sometimes we lie. Let's hear it for our Rahab. That's really good, Martha. 
So good morning, everyone. <clears throat> we are in the second week of Advent, uh, the season of preparation and excitement and anticipation for the birth of Jesus. And uh, for our Advent teaching series, uh, the month of December, we're doing something a little bit different. Um, we are looking at the four women who are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Um, I, talked this, I talked about this a little bit last week, but we had really bad weather, and I know some people couldn't make it, so I just kind of want to catch us all up and get us on the same page. Um, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus, um, this long list of names. This guy you never heard of was the father of this guy you never heard of, who begat this guy and this guy, on and on and on. Uh, he starts with Abraham, like the patriarch, the father of the Jewish people, and takes it all the way through to Jesus. And like most ancient genealogies, the bulk of the list is men. Uh, women didn't have a lot of rights in the ancient world. Uh, in most ancient societies, they weren't even treated as, as equal human beings. And so you almost never find a woman listed in an ancient genealogy, in the Bible or elsewhere. But Matthew lists four. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And so we're digging into their stories uh, this month of Advent, and we want to see if we can figure out maybe why they made the cut. We're calling this series Dangerous Women, uh, with the word dangerous in scare quotes. Those are supposed to be like ironic quotation marks, because for most of church history, unfortunately, these women have been dismissed and really mistreated, um, dismissed as somehow broken, promiscuous, dangerous. But as we saw last week with Tamar's story, there's a lot more going on than that. Tamar was one of Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandmas who famously tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her by pretending to be a prostitute. That's in the Bible. Um, and who, in so doing, uh, saved her entire people, or the people of Israel, from starvation. It is a fascinating story, super icky, um, but if you weren't here last week, definitely go on our website, listen to that sermon, because um, it was a fun one, at least for me. Now this week, we're sticking with the theme of prostitution, but this time it is prostitution on the backdrop of genocide, because what better way to get into the Christmas spirit, right? <laughs> I told my wife that joke earlier this week, and she was like, that is not going to land. <laughs> it did. <clears throat> We're looking at the story of Rahab this week, um, another one of Jesus' ancestors, another one of Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandmas, who was a prostitute by trade and whose story is part of the book of Joshua. Um, by show of hands, how many people remember Joshua and the Battle of Jericho? Anyone know that? Oh, that's almost everybody. Good job. It's a classic Sunday school story. Um, when I was a kid, there was even a song. It was like, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. You guys know it. You know it. This is excellent. This is fantastic. Um, if you were into VeggieTales as a kid, which like some people were good, I just barely missed the cutoff for VeggieTales. So I'm glad so, yeah, we got some VeggieTales people. You might know it as Josh and the Big Wall is the version of this story that you hear with um, cucumbers. But we actually teach this story to kids which is kind of absurd if you like pump the brakes for a second and think about it. Because make no mistake, this is a story about genocide. The book of Joshua is one of the most violent books in the Bible. 
And it's not just a book about genocide, it's a book about divinely sanctioned genocide. God hands the city of Jericho, Rahab's city, over to the Israelites, and they slaughter everybody. The language used is almost like they are a sacrifice offered to God. This is some disturbing stuff. If you're looking for like a biblical affirmation of violence, if you're trying to start a holy war or justify violence against like non-believers or people of other faiths, this is your book. You will find all the justification you need right in the book of Joshua. And that's why Joshua is a book that we don't talk about very often in church. Except in Sunday school to kids, for some reason, with cucumbers. For the rest of us, though, for adults, for those of us who know the damage that can be caused when religion and violence are paired together, Joshua's a book that we would rather ignore. Here's the problem, though, with that, and here's the problem with how a lot of us read the Bible. Christians in the West, people like us, we have been highly shaped by, like, modern, enlightenment, rationalism. Um, We cannot handle tension. We've been taught that all the pieces have to fit together perfectly, otherwise we don't know what to do. If there's any tension, um, if, there's, if there's anything that doesn't fit, any contradictions, anything out of place, we just don't know how to handle it. And so a lot of us don't know how to square a violent book like Joshua with the loving, peaceful, nonviolent message of Jesus. So we just ignore it. And oftentimes we just ignore the whole Old Testament. The thing is, though, Judaism, the religion that gave us the Old Testament, was not a religion shaped by modern rationalism. When you hear the rabbis talk about the Bible, they talk about how there are these different threads running through it, different streams pushing and pulling on each other, debates that are unfolding right in the pages of Scripture. A great example of this would be the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire. Through most of the Bible, through most of the Old Testament, they're the bad guys. They're the enemies of God's people. We are rooting for God to crush the Assyrians. Until you get to the book of Jonah, when God sends a reluctant prophet to preach to the Assyrians, to preach repentance, because it turns out they're God's kids too. Another good example would be a question like, um, should God's people have a king? Should the Israelites have a human king ruling over them? What does the Bible say about that? Someone said no, and that's right. If you look at uh, books like 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, some of the prophetic books, the answer is a clear no. The king is bad. You don't want a king. God warns the Israelites that a king will rule over you and lead you into destruction. But then if you read First and Second Chronicles and some of the Psalms or a book like Judges, well, then the answer is yes. And it's clear that the king is actually appointed by God to lead the people to faithfulness. In a lot of these examples that we find in the Old Testament, you're actually going to find multiple competing streams pushing and pulling on each other, often right next to each other in Scripture. A lot of times it's a book that's pushing against another book. Sometimes, though, the stream is embedded right in the book itself. 
And Rahab's story is one of those examples. Rahab's story is a subversive thread, a counter-narrative of grace and inclusion plopped right into the second chapter of a book about violence and genocide. Rahab's story challenges that larger narrative from within. Let's dig into it. Uh, We're going to be looking at the book of Joshua, chapter 2. It'll be on the screens, but I'd encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. It's one of the easier ones to find um, because we might be jumping around a little bit. But we'll start in verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. Let's pause here for just a minute. I want to sit with this. I don't remember that part from Sunday school, and I want to make sure we're all aware of what just happened in verse 1 of this story. The Israelites are camped at this town of Shittim. It's like a town right outside the Holy Land. They're getting ready to invade. Uh, Jericho is going to be the first city that falls in the Israelite conquest. So Joshua, the leader of Israel, sends two spies to scope out the town, a little reconnaissance work. And so these spies sneak into the city where they enter the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spend the night there. You guys know where I'm going with this. Full disclosure, right up front, um, I've never been a spy. I, I have never been commissioned to do reconnaissance work on a city I'm about to slaughter. So I'm speaking a little bit out of ignorance, but the prostitute's house can't be that high on the list of priorities, right? They go into the house of Rahab and spend the night there. The text isn't even really being that vague. I mean, what... What are we supposed to think they were doing? But these are spies. They're they're Israelites. They're part of God's holy people. This nation of priests God has been refining in the desert for 40 years, making them holy, getting them ready, preparing them to charge into the land and drive out all the sinners and idolaters. And the first place they go is the prostitute's house? Already from the start, this is a story that's starting to poke some holes in the dominant narrative. Let's keep going. Verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. I want to pause here again, too, because there's a lot of innuendos in this exchange with the soldiers. It's easy for us to miss. But this language about coming in, entering into, this is the exact same language we saw Judah use last week with the Tamar story when he propositions Tamar for sex. This language of coming in, entering in, this was the polite way to talk about sex in the ancient world, especially sex with prostitutes. Entering into, coming into. Bring out the men who have literally come into you, who entered into your house. True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. We'll keep going, verse 5. When it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where they went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. Rahab had, however, brought them up to her roof 
and hidden them with the stalks of flasks that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued the spies on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before they went to sleep, Rahab came up to the spies on the roof and said, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us this land. There was a lot going on there. I want to make a few observations. There's three things I want to highlight. First, I think it's important to note that Rahab is in control of this entire situation. She just takes control. She jumps into action. All the action words practically are associated with Rahab. She does the bulk of the talking. She hides the spies. She sends the soldiers on a wild goose chase. Once the city gate is closed and the spies are basically stuck on her roof for the night with no escape, that's when she corners them and negotiates for her family's safety. This is not some helpless, powerless woman. In fact, Rahab defies all the stereotypes we would expect of a woman in this um, patriarchal setting. She has her own business. She has her own house. She manages her own household. There is a whole family that she is responsible for. Rahab's basically the the closest thing this ancient patriarchal society would have had to like a modern day career woman. That's Rahab. She's an incredibly strong character, plopped into a very dangerous situation who takes full control of what's happening. That's number one. Number two, and this is really interesting, Rahab seems to know Israel's God. This constant theme that we find in the Exodus story, the story right before all this when the Israelites are wandering in the desert for 40 years, is that God is always having to remind the Israelites about how he rescued them in the past. Remember how I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Remember how I delivered you from Pharaoh. Remember how I parted the Red Sea. God has to keep reminding the Israelites about this because they keep forgetting, but Rahab remembers. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Rahab sounds an awful lot like Moses in these words. Read Deuteronomy sometime, Moses' farewell to the people. It is so close to what Rahab is saying. It's, it's interesting. Her language, the words she uses, her phrases, the way she refers to God as the Lord, that's how people like Moses and Joshua talked about God. 
But now it's coming from a pagan prostitute who lives in the walls of a city God's people are about to destroy. Talk about upending your reader's expectations, right? Third observation I want to make about this story. The spies actually agree to Rahab's terms. They have Rahab hang this uh, red cord from her window, um, which looks an awful lot like uh, the blood at Passover. It's kind of hearkening back to that old story from Exodus. And then when the Israelites invade the walls, uh, the city and the walls come tumbling down, they pass over Rahab's house, and she and her family are saved. Rahab and the spies even use covenant language in this story. Uh, In verses 12 and 14 especially, they talk about dealing kindly with each other. The Hebrew word there, translated dealing kindly, is the word chesed. Can I hear you all say chesed? Chesed, good, good, that was good. Chesed is one of the most important words, one of the most important ideas in the Old Testament. Um, It's usually translated love or loving kindness, but it reflects this idea of covenant faithfulness. When two people are joined together in holy matrimony and they exchange their vows, that's what we call chesed. When God makes his covenant with Abraham that, that God will bless him and God will be his God and Abraham's descendants will be God's people, that's chesed. When Moses uh, gets the Ten Commandments and the Israelites are there on Mount Sinai and they agree to to be God's people, they enter into this covenant that is chesed. This promise of mutual love and faithfulness, the language that God uses over and over again with God's people, that's the language used between Rahab and the spies. And that is huge. Huge. Because back when the Israelites were in the wilderness getting ready for this invasion, they were explicitly told not to make covenants with the inhabitants of the land. Check this out, Exodus 34, beginning in verse 12. This will be on the screen, I know it's hard to flip. Take care not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going, or it will become a snare among you. You shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to their gods, someone among them will invite you, and you will eat of the sacrifice. And you will take wives from among their daughters for your sons, and their daughters who prostitute themselves to their gods will make your sons also prostitute themselves to their gods. And then right before the Israelites go into this, to the land, Deuteronomy 20, we read this. But as for the towns of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded. Don't make covenants with the inhabitants of the land. Kill them. Kill every single one of them. Don't make an agreement, don't sign a treaty, don't exchange secrets, don't take wives from them, certainly don't offer them chesed, otherwise they may prostitute you to their gods. And yet the first thing these spies do when they enter the land is go to the house of a pagan prostitute where they make a covenant. Rahab is the wrong nationality. 
the wrong gender, the wrong religion, certainly the wrong profession, and yet she acts to protect these Israelite spies, and her family is saved in return. Her story is preserved forever in the pages of the Bible. For centuries after Jericho fell, um, Rahab would be remembered as an example of faith. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, um, she's listed alongside heroes of faith like Noah and Abraham and King David. Rahab makes the cut for her faithfulness. Centuries later, um, Jewish rabbis would flesh out Rahab's story a lot more. Um, they believe that she converted to Judaism. She married an Israelite. Um, they believe she was uh, the mother of, or sorry, yeah, the mother of Boaz, the great grandfather of King David. None of that is in the Old Testament, by the way. That's all Jewish oral tradition. But that's where Matthew gets it from, if you were wondering. When we read Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, this is how Rahab ends up in Jesus' family tree. In this incredibly violent and problematic book, a book where God's people wage holy war, Rahab stands as this little thread of resistance, pulling us in that there might be more to the story. Don't trust the inhabitants of the land, and yet Rahab proves trustworthy. The natives prostitute themselves to idols, and yet this prostitute knows Israel's God. Kill every last man, woman, and child in the city, but Rahab and her family survives. We often assume that Jesus stands in contrast to the Old Testament, that Jesus took this violent nationalistic religion and kind of made it about peace, made it, about, made it for everyone, got rid of the violence. But that thread was always there, just under the surface. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Let, all who is without, or let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus knew how to play with the tension, the threads in his Bible. Exclusion and inclusion, war and peace, genocide and grace. And every single time Jesus catches some religious insider using scripture to marginalize or to harm, to denigrate or condone violence, every single time, Jesus grabs hold of that thread of Rahab, that exception to the rule, and he runs with it. May we have the wisdom and the discernment to do likewise. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Rahab. In the midst of a violent, troubling book like Joshua, thank you for giving us this thread, this exception to the rule.
God, help us to remember that we are all exceptions to the rule. None of us have earned anything. None of us are without sin. By Old Testament standards, we're not even the right nationality. And yet, God, through your Son, we have received grace. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who hasn't received that grace, Lord, anyone who feels that they are somehow outside the realm of your love, I pray that in Rahab's example, they'd find a way inside. That they might be moved to put their trust in you, just as she did. God, thank you for your grace. And thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.